0: For Every Child, brought to you by UNICEF New Zealand.
1: You're listening to For Every Child, UNICEF New Zealand's radio programme which delves into the issues facing children around the world and right here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. So, welcome, I'm Nicholas Dale, and a Happy New Year to all our listeners. <laughs> in today's episode, we learn about some of UNICEF's leaders and celebrity ambassadors. 2016 was a mixed bag of a year, and UNICEF brought assistance to children in places as far-flung as Fiji and Syria. We also marked our 70th birthday in 2016, which provided a good opportunity to reflect on our work over the past few decades. I personally knew nothing about UNICEF's history, so I talked to UNICEF New Zealand's bequest manager, John Daesh, was a fond of knowledge about this organisation. We started off by talking about UNICEF's founding director, Maurice Pate.
2: When I joined UNICEF 11 years ago, I read up the history of UNICEF. So I like looking at what's gone before so that I can get a handle on what I'm meant to be doing now. Because I, I think historically that's how my mind works. I studied history at university and it's, uh, it's always been important to me. I like the stories of those who've gone before as an inspiration for us today and for the future.
1: So UNICEF was founded like 70 years ago by Morris Pate.
2: Well, that's not quite true. UNICEF was started after the Second World War because when the United Nations got together in America, first of all in Los Angeles, then in New York, they were concerned and had a compassionate interest in the displaced, many, many displaced, thousands, millions of displaced children in Europe. Europe was a mess. It had been bombed to smithereens, and uh, the United Nations felt that they must do something for the children in Europe. So they formed the an, an emergency uh children's organization called the United Nations International Children's Emergency Fund, UNICEF. Then they looked around for somebody to lead this organization and they chose Morris Pate. The reason why they chose Morris Pate is that from his childhood, he'd had a passion for poor children. Mm. When he was four years old with his father in Denver, In church one day, the minister said, there are poor children in America. And little Morris Pape said to his daddy, daddy, are the poor children in America? We must do something about them. Mm. And he grew up to become uh, a Harvard-educated professional. I believe he was an economist and uh, a, a, a highly educated person. And he got involved, first of all, in the First World War, then in the Second World War, working with Red Cross and uh, other organisations to provide relief to prisoners of war and uh, people in Europe. Hmm. So he was chosen as a suitable person to lead this um, emergency uh, fund for children in Europe and in 1946 when the fund was being discussed and formed he uh, talked to the people involved in it and he made a statement which has become one of the ways UNICEF operates. In a letter he said that it must include all children of ex enemy countries, Japanese, Finnish, Austrians, Italians and Germans. And that's one of the ways UNICEF has always operated. We work for children no matter what political system they're under, what religious system they're under, what
1: ethnicity they are. We're there for all the children of the world. It's quite a potent kind of thing, really. Like, I never sort of... We're for every child, you know, that's the thing, Absolutely. isn't it? Absolutely. And it doesn't matter if your parents are terrorists or refugees or children matter right that's that's the point
2: absolutely yeah and uh, that gives us great entree to every country in the world because every country has children every parent is concerned for their children and uh, whether they're the most corrupt dictator or most heinous regime in the world they're still concerned for their children and will work with anybody for the sake Of the children of the world Mm. so that's what morris pate did Mm. and for instance in 1946 he went into europe and uh, i imagined him going into cities like budapest where the children were running around in bare feet in the snow Mm. in december in europe was a very bitter winter and uh, the nazis had departed buildings were burning Many of their parents had been killed and Morris Pate called for all the organisations, the Red Cross and everybody else who was concerned to provide aid for these children. Often the first milk they received, the first food, the first boots were from UNICEF uh, arranged support. Mm. And uh, Morris Pate did such a good job that the Nobel Peace Prize people came to him and said, we want to give you the Nobel Peace Prize. Him being a humble man said, no, it must go to the organization. So UNICEF uh, was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize uh, thanks to Morris Pate. And we had an amazing start because that first emergency fund, which was only meant to last for three or four years for the children of Europe, was so successful, um, in 1953 UNICEF was made a permanent organisation for all the children of the world.
1: So after a really sort of, we could think of UNICEF as having a wildly successful start under uh, Morris Pate. But then we, we also consider when James P. Grant stepped into the frame, as more of a sort of a defining era, though, don't we?
2: certainly was. James yeah. P. Grant was recommended to be the executive director for UNICEF in 1980. He was recommended by the president of the time, uh, Jimmy Carter, uh, because um, James P. Grant had been working for a long time in uh, international development and aid. His background is interesting. His grandfather was a medical missionary in China. Mm. And then his father was a leading um, public health uh, practitioner, and I believe ran the first conference in China in public health and in India. Mm and so he was a highly respected man. James P Grant was born in Beijing, grew up speaking Mandarin and English, but he was an American, and he carried on this family tradition of uh, doing good for great populations of the people. And uh, he got involved more in the political side, and at one stage he was the assistant Secretary of State for Southeast Asia, and so he was very involved in American aid programs, and worked for that both in Asia and in Turkey. And then set up a think tank in Washington for how,
1: the best ways of doing development work. Just, to, just to interrupt you for a bit, John, it sounds to me, and um, the sound, like you're reading his CV, but what can we kind of get an and we can sort of like get maybe give him an idea for him as a man, you know. Like, I'm sure like when, when I think UNICEF, I, I know that there's like these people who run UNICEF have got to be like these multilingual Harvard educated people. That that that's that's a given for me. But what makes James P. Grant exceptional? Like, why why do we consider him the 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 defining because UNICEF was creative.
2: P. Grant is exceptional because he was a larger-than-life character. He he had a very strong agenda for children, and he would not take no for an answer. Mm. He had an amazing ability to negotiate with all sorts of world leaders to get them on board. Mm. For instance, in 1980. He looked around the world to look at what was happening with children and he came up with this statement. He said, it's inconscionable that millions of children are dying in developing countries every day of diseases which we in the West have long overcome. Diseases like polio, measles, Mm -hmm. whooping cough diarrhoea, children in our countries in the West, New Zealand, Australia, America do not die of those diseases, but millions are dying every year of those diseases. So he he set up and he arranged programmes to fight these, and uh, simple uh, uh, interventions, particularly um, vaccinations.
1: Because polio is nearly eradicates it yep. and was that something which he triggered or was? he certainly did in 1985
2: UNICEF formed a, uh, a coalition and UNICEF is a coordinating organisation we we work with everybody who is helping children and UNICEF formed a worldwide compact with um, Rotary International who've raised millions and millions and millions of dollars for Uh, polio plus, they call it, Mm. and the World Health Organization and an American um, scientific organization who developed the best vaccines available and the best methods. Then James P. Grant demanded that every country in the world organize vaccinations for their children, particularly developing countries. Mm. In 1984, the head of UNICEF in El Salvador contacted James P. Grant and said, boss, we can't vaccinate <laughs> all the children in this country. Half the country is a no-go zone because we have a civil war going on. James P. Grant, as I mentioned, was a person who would not take no for an answer. And do you know what he said? What? He said, <laughs> stop the war. Mm. And he went down there, he negotiated with a rebel group, he negotiated with the government, and he got enough ceasefire days to vaccinate all the children in El Salvador. That was the first time UNICEF uh, did this and now it's a method we use. We call it days of tranquility. and We negotiate between uh, warring groups to have enough ceasefire days in order to get aid to children. We've recently been doing that in Syria. Of course, uh, it's not a a, a a perfect system because mm. sometimes, like in Syria, where you have many fighting groups, someone will break that truce, and our convoys in Syria were attacked mm. uh, recently, mm. uh, and also the um, people fleeing from Syria were attacked just this last
1: week. For me personally, John, when I was um, when I was growing up. I didn't know much about UNICEF, and I didn't know much about Audrey Hepburn either as an actress. But what I did know about Audrey Hepburn was she was she was holding babies and saving children's lives, mm. and that's all. And when and when when she died, I knew her as a woman who, she I thought she was like a humanitarian figure more than an actress. Absolutely. So so can you talk to talk to talk to me a bit more about how, talk, talk to me about how, how Audrey Hepburn was involved with UNICEF.
2: Audrey Hepburn
1: became so passionate
2: about helping children and being a UNICEF ambassador that even when she was dying, her doctor said to her, Audrey, you mustn't travel anymore. She said, I must do it (laughs) for the children. And she came to New Zealand and had a mayoral reception in Auckland. Mm. And uh, uh, she was representing UNICEF all around the world in developing countries, as you say, holding babies and uh, putting before the world the needs of children. And she was a passionate... Uh, supporter of UNICEF having been a very famous actress and uh, why she got involved I believe was that she as a teenager growing up in the uh, as a child growing up in the Netherlands during the war after the war in Holland many many people were starving they were even eating tulip bulbs and Mm. so on and um, UNICEF provided food and help and Audrey Hepburn says that she was helped by that.
1: I found a clip of Audrey Hepburn from a 1988 interview where she talks about her experiences um, travelling to Ethiopia with UNICEF so I thought I'd share that with you now.
3: I was, I've been you know, so privileged to be given this opportunity to do something for children And it actually was a great relief for me because I've sat in front of television so often and been frustrated or or seen photographs or read articles about Ethiopia. And I've been so pent up with that feeling which most of us have is you can't do anything. And the idea that now I can, however little, is a great relief and I went very eagerly. And I'm very optimistic because basically It's a country that's too poor to help itself, but it needs very little to be able to help itself because they're very hard working, very eager to be independent, and all they ask for really is is help to help themselves. I think you can use Europe as as an example. Everybody there in the last 45 years live in peace and and, uh, help each other. And I think it is in the human spirit to argue, to quarrel, but it's also in the human spirit to remember a giving hand. I've known UNICEF all my life, you know? And, um, and I've admired and trusted them all this time. And it's, it's, it's a marvelous happening for me that, that, that they're allowing me to do this. Well, I don't live in seclusion. I live in the country which lots of people do and lots of people like either weekends or, or on a permanent basis. It was always my dream as a child and all through my working years was to have a house of my own and a garden. And I love it, and I've had that house for many years now. And I had looked forward to a period, finally, after all the traveling that I've done since I was a child, I've sort of led a circus life, to one day be able to retire there and take care of my garden and the dogs and everything I love. You I know, mean, that's, that's my, uh, my idea of heaven. But um, I'm moving around the world once again, but I'm happy to do it because for children, I'd I'd go to the moon. It's awfully hard to ask people to prevent a disaster rather than to help once it's happened, like the last time. UNICEF is everywhere helping them, and especially helping them to help themselves. And if I may really give it you in a nutshell, what UNICEF wants to do is to give them a spade to dig their water wells, but not to dig the graves of their children.
1: He's really fantastic. So the actor Danny Kaye is someone who might not know much about, but um, he was quite significant for UNICEF, wasn't he John?
2: So he was well known all over the world for his films. Uh, Then he got involved uh, with UNICEF as a UNICEF ambassador and he traveled all over the world visiting children promoting uh, UNICEF Mm. and um, before he died he said the most important thing I've ever done in my life is what I've done for UNICEF in promoting uh, aid for children and so he you know became a very passionate uh, supporter uh, of UNICEF, and many, many people became supporters because of him. Even today, the name Danny Kay is uh, used for the American Bequest Society. The United States uh, Fund was the first country to fund UNICEF, and uh, they have the Danny Kay Society, which is their bequest society, and many millions of dollars. Come to UNICEF from Wills because of the name of
1: Danny Kay. It lives on in UNICEF. Was he? Was he? The, was he the first celebrity ambassador? Uh,
2: Cause, because I'm we've not used sure celebrities. Audrey or Danny were mm. the first, but uh, they were both, uh, you know, early involved as ambassadors for UNICEF, mm. and that's been one of the of the 70 years of UNICEF that we've been very fortunate to have leading actors and actresses and sports people who have got behind UNICEF, um, such as the most famous footballer in England, Beckham, <laughs> David Beckham, <laughs> who's very passionate about UNICEF yeah. and has even set up his own
1: trust for UNICEF, we just wanted to test it. That's wonderful. And um, so, uh, so it's good that we're, we, I guess, we're still that, that that tradition's still going strong. Then, absolutely. Yeah, it's just uh, a wonderful. That was John Dache, UNICEF New Zealand's bequest manager. UNICEF works for the betterment of children around the world, but you might be surprised to know that we work here in New Zealand as well. And I'm joined now with children's rights advocate, Dr Prudence Stone, who's just here to fill me in on what we're doing with advocacy in New Zealand and what challenges lie ahead um, within that space. I start off by asking Dr Stone about what UNICEF does for New Zealand children.
0: Well, I guess it comes down to what kind of UNICEF office you have and in New Zealand we have a NatCom and what a NatCom does is different from um, your usual office operating in places like Ethiopia where there's real disaster and third world status. Here in New Zealand with a NatCom we do fundraising and we do advocacy we don't actually do disaster related programs. So in the fundraising space we are raising money here in New Zealand um, from sympathetic New Zealanders who want to help out those disaster areas in places like Ethiopia. Um, And then if we raise enough money here in New Zealand for those programs headquarters in Geneva tells us we're allowed to do we're allowed to employ some people to actually advocate for children's rights in New Zealand as well. And so I have this luxurious role, this real privileged role in UNICEF um, given that we raise loads of money here in New Zealand um, to be a children's rights advocate for children here in New Zealand. And right now that means that I am pouring through the news about our new ministers and looking at our new cabinet and seeing how we can help our new cabinet get in fit into their new roles um there's a new minister of social housing there is a new role called the minister of children in fact so these that's a really exciting thing for new zealand and obviously it means our advocacy in the past is um sinking in with our government that they've actually sort of taken uh, these issues that were um, highlighted by UNICEF in the past and um, turned them into official roles around the, around cabinet to give 100% of their time to.
1: So, so advocacy for UNICEF is working with the community to talk to government? No, no.
0: Nope, nope. We don't do any community engagement. That's what an office in, in Ethiopia would do, community engagement. Um, we engage with youth to lift up their voice to do advocacy, but what advocacy is, is really around looking at the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child, seeing where New Zealand is breaching those articles, um, and right now there's a breach of um, the Housing article, um, the Social Security article. So so, so the, these articles lo- um, outline 42 rights of children, and when children in New Zealand don't have social security, don't have a roof over their head, and because of their housing crisis are um, in peril with their education, which is another right, a right to education, then we have to let our government know because our government has a responsibility to ensure that all children are ensuring uh, are enjoying those rights.
1: So, so the, the rights are something which children are guaranteed under the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. Why is this important?
0: Well, um, it's important. I mean, it's really who considers it important. I mean, you can you can talk to some people, and some people would say it's not important. So, UNICEF's role is to really be arguing and um, ensuring that everybody does believe that the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child is important, Um, that children are important. There's a real old-fashioned 19th century view still out there and quite strong in our society that children should be seen and not heard, That, um, that they're brats if they have a sense of entitlement. And so it's UNICEF's job to say actually they're entitled to 42 rights at least these 42 rights and that doesn't mean they're entitled to as much coke as they like that's not one of the rights inside the United Nations Convention um, basic maybe base, it should be base, no, <laughs> no they're, so it's, they've got a right to health mm. and so there's a connection between okay so let's look at this right to health and the connection between coca-cola advertising and marketing to children and the fact that that coca-cola in some retail centers is cheaper than milk or even mm-hmm. um, the, the the water rates for the household uh, and so you do have babies and children getting fed more and more of this fizzy drink instead of what, uh, what health professionals would, would advise. Because it's just cheaper and the kid's got to drink something. And so then you have all this health outcome with their teeth and with their obesity. And so there's a direct link. And so if you didn't have organizations like UNICEF pointing out those links to government, Government would turn a blind eye to all that Coca-Cola and fizzy drink marketing, um, but instead you have a whole health sector up in arms in trying to advocate, and UNICEF's part of that and at the at the uh, at the forefront of that.
1: So we're considered a a kind of, or well UNICEF is considered a, an authoritative voice on what children need to be have a stable. Healthy, happy upbringing.
0: Absolutely, um, you. Uh, I mean, if I, I would say anybody um, who wants to know about children's rights should contact either UNICEF and or the Children's Commissioner. We are sort of like the watchdogs of children's rights. And it's our job to try and get every other child advocate organisation out there to have a rights, a child rights-based framework to their advocacy. I
1: think it's going to be quite interesting, sort of just um, if, if maybe we can um, do more of these, and you can fill us in during the on the course of the year. And, oh, I'd love and, to. Yeah, yes, please, and we can sort of hopefully keep everyone who has an interest in um, children and then how. To, the, the, Betterment of children in, in this country yeah. will be able to um, yeah. learn 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 how, this, how how it's going.
0: Well so. look I'd love to just say to the listeners if they want to write submissions on any um, piece of legislative reform um, at any time that and you know legislative reform that in, involves children um, or it has any impact on children to please get in touch with me so that we can um, collaborate and coordinate our key messages.
1: And that's prudence.unicef.org.nz. That was UNICEF New Zealand's children's rights advocate, Dr Prudence Stone. So Happy New Year to all of our listeners. Uh, we'll be back for another episode of For Every Child. Thanks for listening. Um, I'm always trying to make this a better a show, so if there is any suggestions, are welcome. And you can send them to me at nick.unicef.org.nz. And we'll hear here again next month.
0: For every child brought to you by UNICEF New Zealand.